Folks, what does everyone do when shopping online? Well, you jump to the reviews and you see what customers actually think. Well, Bull & Branch did the hard work for you. In a recent customer survey, 96% said Bull & Branch sheets get softer with every single wash. Bull & Branch sheets are made from the finest 100% organic cotton threads on planet Earth. Buttery to the touch, super breathable, Bull & Branch sheets are perfect for both cooler and warmer months. Their luxurious signature hem sheets were made without pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. They really do get softer with every single wash. Best of all, Bull & Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping, returns on all orders. You're not going to want to return them. We love our Bull & Branch product. In fact, when I'm on the road, I actually travel with their cable knit throw blanket. It is that good. Their product is just awesome. After a long day, nothing feels better than a restful night's sleep in the softest, most luxurious sheets. Sleep better at night with the softest sheets from Bull & Branch. Get 15% off your very first order when you use code BEN at bullandbranch.com. That's Bull & Branch, spelled B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code BEN. Exclusions apply. See site for details, bullandbranch.com. Well, we have reached a Thursday, and we welcome you to a very sensual, beautiful, elegant, complex episode of the Ben Shapiro Show. Today, in honor of our president, we will be tangoing our way through politics just as he tangoes his way through life. Yes, seriously, he tangoes his way through life. Like, look at this. This is real. President of the United States. Do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he almost tosses around a rump there. Okay, so some people could believe. You could watch this and you might believe that President Obama isn't taking the problem of terrorism particularly seriously, given that he's dancing the dance of love with a random lady in Argentina while Brussels burned. But here's the thing. You're not seeing the deeper picture. You're not. Alejandro Gui is a tango teacher. He wrote his psychology grad thesis on the intricacy of the tango, and here's what he said. He said, The posture of a person is not just a position that we are supposed to stand or dance in, but also a reflection of who we are. The way we connect, the way we lead or follow, are also a perfect reflection of our social, emotional, and mental status. Usually 10 minutes into the class, you can tell more about a person's character or the relationship within a couple than you could after talking. So, what does President Obama's tango tell us? Well, it tells us that he leads from behind. I mean, clearly, <laughs> clearly she doesn't, she's not waiting for him to lead that dance. It tells us that he is wildly confused and heads in many different directions all at once before he's directed in vaguely a direction by a professional. It shows he's a passionate, virile man. Uh, no, it actually doesn't really show that part. But it shows that he's connected to people. And that's the essence of the tango. Tango artist Sasha Kagan says, quote, when you and your partner have both the connection to each other and the connection to their own bodies and their own axis, you have magic. And it's just too bad that Obama's constantly dancing the tango with the world's worst dictators, like with Iran and Russia and China and the Palestinians. He has a connection to them. The connection is pure magic. Just stick a rose in his mouth and let the dictators summon him with a flick of their wrists. Ah, the dance of love. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. You tend to demonize people who don't care about your feelings. Before we weep for the country, remember there still is a constitution and it is up to you to preserve and defend that constitution. The way to do that is to go to our friends over at Hillsdale College. Hillsdale College, great institution. If you have a kid looking to go to college, you want to send your kids to Hillsdale, a great great college that still actually values things like traditional classics education and the Constitution, but it's not just for your kids. It's for you. They have an online course called Constitution 101 that you can download for free. Super cool, no age restrictions. Go to hillsdale.edu slash Ben, hillsdale.edu slash Ben. You want to hold your politicians accountable? You want to know the Constitution and where they're getting it wrong? You need to take the Constitution 101 course from hillsdale.edu slash Ben Hillsdale College. Okay, so President Obama was in Argentina yesterday dancing the dance of love. And between dancing the dance of love and dancing the other dance of love with Raul Castro, presumably, he, he did a press conference. And at this press conference, I made a mistake yesterday and today on, on yesterday's show I want to correct. I said that there's a socialist regime in Argentina. That's not true. The socialist regime in Argentina was ousted. That was Kirchner. She was ousted last year. The new guys actually sent her right. In any case, President Obama was there and he was speaking about the terror attacks in Brussels, and he is such a disgrace. And he's not just a disgrace because optics matter. And, and let's face facts here. President Obama, better than any president 
in the history of the country understands optics. It's all he cares about. All he cares about is how he looks. All he cares about is what he looks like when he's doing things and how the events that he's participating in look to the rest of the world. He's an egotist. He's a narcissist. But he's somebody who understands the power of imagery. So he totally understands what it means to go to baseball games with dictators while the world burns or to dance with Argentinian women while, he, while, while the rest of the world tries to deal with the threat of radical Islam. He understands all of that. But he seems kind of perturbed when people question him about it. So he's asked about this yesterday. He was asked, you know, what are your priorities? And he said, it's important to recognize this is my number one priority. Brussels is. He said, I've got a lot of things on my plate, including that lady, presumably. But here's, he continued along those lines. Here's what he had to say. My charge to my team is to find every strategy possible to successfully reduce the risk of such terrorist attacks, even as we go after their beating heart in places like Iraq and Syria. And as our strategy evolves and we see additional opportunities, we will go after it. But what we don't do and what we should not do is take approaches that are going to be counterproductive. So when I hear somebody saying we should carpet bomb Iraq or Syria, not only is that inhumane, not only is that contrary to our values, but that would likely be an extraordinary mechanism for ISIL to recruit more people willing to die and explode bombs in an airport or in a metro station. That's not a smart strategy. So in other words, if you try to kill the members of ISIS, you're going to create more members of ISIS. He's referring there to Senator Ted Cruz's comments a few weeks back that he would carpet bomb ISIS. What he meant by that, he explained this in debate, what he meant by that was targeted strikes that are very, very heavy. He didn't mean indiscriminate bombing of civilians, which is what Obama seems to be implying there. It's very galling to hear the guy who created ISIS. I mean, Obama did. He created ISIS. ISIS did not exist before Obama was in office. And his withdrawal from Iraq created the power of ISIS, turned ISIS from the JV squad, as he liked to call them several years back, into a, a world-threatening power in terms of terrorism. But we shouldn't really be surprised by this. This is who Obama always was. This is what drives me nuts about the people who take politicians at their word. Obama pretends to be strong, but here's what he wrote in Dreams for My Father, which is a book that came out in the 90s. He wrote this in his new introduction, written when I was in law school. So it's been back in like 2001, 2000. Well, I, let's see. It came out in... I, this came out in like 2002, 2003, and then I read it, I remember, in about 2006. He, he writes, quote, Terrorism is the, quote, desperation and disorder of the powerless, driven by the response of the powerful to this disorder, a steady, unthinking application of force. In other words, if you're mean to the bad guys, you create more bad guys. Right? We just have to be nice to them. We have to be nicer to them. And then he continues along these lines, that we just have to be nicer to them. He says, you know, the reason we haven't had terrorist attacks in the United States other than San Bernardino and Boston and Chattanooga, Tennessee and Fort Hood, other than New York City, other than Washington, D.C., you know, aside from all of those ones, aside from all those terrorists, the, the reason we haven't had more terrorist attacks in the United States is that we're nice to our Muslims. Here's President Obama on that. One of the great strengths of the United States and part of the reason why we have not seen more attacks in the United States is we have a... Uh, extraordinarily successful, patriotic, integrated Muslim American community. Uh, they do not feel ghettoized. They do not feel isolated. Okay, so in other words, it's Brussels' fault that Brussels was attacked. Because if they had made their Muslims feel better, if they'd just been nicer to them and patted them on the head every so often, then everything would have been okay. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. The President of the United States seems to be under the misimpression that opening your borders, giving people welfare, and allowing them not to integrate into your society or assimilate, that's not good enough. You have to do something more. He never explains what that something more is, by the way. What exactly is Brussels supposed to do, aside from turning one quarter of their capital over to Muslims? Okay, 26% of the, of the Brussels population is Muslim. And this is true for major capitals around Europe. Increasingly, increasingly Muslim. Paris is 10 to 15% Muslim at this point. It's increasing dramatically in Berlin. You know, the, the, there, there are certain cities in, in France where it's even higher than that. Rotterdam is, is significantly Muslim. If you look at the major cities in Europe, and I'm, I'm actually looking it up right now, cities, Muslim population. If you take a look at, at what it looks like, it, it's, it's pretty astonishing.
So I'm looking right now, a list of cities in the European Union by Muslim population. Amsterdam is 24% Muslim. Antwerp in Belgium is 17% Muslim. Barcelona in Spain is approximately 18% Muslim. It's from Wikipedia, so take it with a mild grain of salt, but it's probably right. Blackburn in the UK is 29% Muslim. Cologne in Germany is 12% Muslim. Brussels is 26% Muslim. Right? London is, is anywhere up to 13% Muslim. Malmo in Sweden is 20% Muslim. Marseille in France is 25% Muslim. Milan in Italy is nearly 10% Muslim. Paris is 10 to 15% Muslim, as I mentioned. Rotterdam is 25%. So all of the major cities of Europe now have a very significant population of Muslims. If, if those percentages don't mean anything to you, think about the fact that about 10% of the American population is black. Okay, so imagine, and, and this is not to compare blacks to Muslims in terms of the terrorist threat, obviously. I'm just taking, for example, if you're wondering how visible Muslims are in, in some of these cities, think about black folks in your city, and that's probably how visible Muslims are. And it's not a problem of visibility. It's a problem of, and it's not even a problem of how many Muslims there are, except that you have to assume a statistical parity. So assume, for example, that there's a steady percentage of any population of Muslims who are going to be terrorists associated with terrorists or at least kind of terrorists. And it's higher than any other religion, by far, not close. Let's assume that on the low end, and I really think this is low end, let's assume it's 20%, 20%. And it varies by country and it varies by, by where the Muslims are coming from. Let's, let's just assume for purposes of clarity, 20%. So 20, th that means that if you let in 20,000 Muslims, then approximately 4,000 Muslims are going to be worth surveilling. Right? It means that if you let in 200,000 Muslims, then you're talking about 40,000 Muslims who are worth surveilling. The percentage does not change, really. It's just that, it, it, if anything, it may grow larger as the Muslim population grows because the more radicalized Muslims have a broader ground from which to recruit. So the idea that being nice is what's going to solve this problem is simply not true. What's going to solve this problem is precisely what the left does not want to do. But President Obama continues along these lines, blaming the West for all the problems. That's what he does. He then goes after Senator Cruz. Senator Cruz said over the, over the last few days, he, he said that we need to have better policing in Muslim areas. What he meant by that is, if that's where the terrorism is, that's where you put the resources. Duh. I mean, this is not hard. France does this. New York was doing this for a long time. Israel has done this forever. You actually have to expend your resources. Law enforcement is a scarce resource. You can't check everybody equally, nor should you. It's silly. I love that the left wants us to frontally lobotomize ourselves and, and participate in this process where we just reject the risk assessment that we know we engage in every single day for virtually everything. We're constantly assessing risk. That's what it means to be a human being. You're assessing risk and making decisions based on that assessment. The left wants us to carve that part out of our brain and pretend that it doesn't exist. So President Obama is your lobotomist. He is your presidential lobotomist. And here he is saying exactly that. We have to, we have to frontally lobotomize ourselves to the risk of increased Muslim population, including radical Muslims. As far as the notion of having surveillance of neighborhoods where Muslims are present, I just left a country that engages in that kind of neighborhood surveillance, which, by the way, the father of Senator Cruz escaped for America, the land of the free. The notion that we would start down that slippery slope makes absolutely no sense. Okay, it's contrary all, to who we are. First of all, when he was in Cuba, he had nothing to say about any of that, right? He was in Cuba talking to the Castros, nothing to say. As we mentioned yesterday, when he posed in front of that statue of Che Guevara, that mural of Che Guevara, behind that statue, you could see the Cuban Ministry of the Interior, where they dragged the dissidents to torture them and imprison them. He had nothing to say about any of that while he was in Cuba. Now he's outside Cuba, so he can say that Senator Cruz is basically a Cuban communist, you know, like the one he was embracing just a few minutes ago. All of this is, is asinine. Okay, the reality is that racial profiling, religious profiling, profiling is all that means is that you are taking into account additional factors when you look at risk. So there's a different racial profiling basically is just description of the suspect extended across a class. That's all that's happening, right? So if, if somebody calls the cops and they say, a black guy just robbed my liquor store, the cops are not going to go out and round up every white person. It's a waste of time. And if the cops, it's in a poor neighborhood, they're going to canvas specifically in that neighborhood for the black guys of a particular age who match that description. Okay, terrorism only comes from heavily Muslim communities. 
That it's the only place where you're getting Islamic terror. It's the only place, right? It doesn't it's not coming from nowhere. It's coming from specifically heavily Islamic communities, very often from mosque goers. That doesn't mean at all that every Muslim is a terrorist or a potential terrorist. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means that you are going to look, not, not every rectangle is a square, but every square is a rectangle. So if you're going to look for squares, you're going to have to start by looking at all the various rectangles until you find the squares, right? That's all that's happening here. Israel has been doing this for years. The, the fact that the left refuses to acknowledge this, this is why they are going to get people killed. Seriously, people will die because of this politically correct nonsense. So you have Hillary Clinton saying the same thing. She was ripping into, into, into Cruz. Let's, we'll finish with, with Obama, and then we'll get back into this in, in one second. But President Obama, just to finish off his stupidity here, President Obama, that wasn't even the worst of what he had to say. right? President Obama went ahead and said that the way to fight ISIS was to, was to just tell them things. Here we go. We defeat them in part by saying, you are not strong. You are weak. We send a message to those who might be inspired by them to say, you are not going to change our values of, of liberty and openness and uh, the respect of all people. We defeat them by saying, you are not strong, you are weak. What, like on a postcard? I'm going to stick that on a Hallmark card and just send it to him? Is it going to be one of those magic cards where you open it up and it's a recording? Obama's pre-recorded, so they, he sends a letter to ISIS, he airmails it, and then they, they open up the card and goes, you are not strong. You are weak. That's a great way to fight ISIS. I'm sure that now that they've heard you say that, they will stop fighting. This is the idiocy that leads people to chalk messages on the streets in Brussels and sing Imagine, and then imagine that they're really standing up to the terrorists in a major way. That's not even the most ridiculous thing Obama said. We'll get to that in just a second. But first, time out for Reagan.com. ReaganPrivacy.com is where you need to go right now. If you don't want the government or corporations looking at your emails and using your emails to either market to you or to surveil you, as the government likes to do, you need to go to reaganprivacy.com right now. You go there, and you get an email address that is your name at reagan.com, so Ben Shapiro at reagan.com, which is great for two reasons. One is, number one, as I say, it protects you from the government grabbing your emails and the email content. It protects you from corporations doing the same with their kind of creepy little little spam filters and all the rest of it, um, or, or rather the cookies. But the second reason is because you now have an email address associated with Ronald Reagan, which is super cool, in an era where Reaganism seems to be on the way, and you can actually help fight back by reminding people. Actually, you know, it's kind of interesting. There are these little cues that we all use in everyday life that remind us, that tether us to things. The reason why people wear bracelets to remind them of things, the, the WWJD bracelets. Reagan.com, maybe it'll help remind people that maybe we ought to think about what Reagan would do in particular circumstances. Go to ReaganPrivacy.com right now. Get your email, and you get two free months if you go there right now, reaganprivacy.com. Okay, so the stupidest thing President Obama said yesterday wasn't even when he said we're going to defeat ISIS by saying, you're not strong, you're weak. Ha ha, take that. No, the worst thing that he said was this, okay? He, he said he was trying to excuse why he went to a baseball game instead of worrying about terrorism in Brussels, and here's what he had to say. I, I mentioned at the baseball game uh, yesterday, one of my proudest moments as president was watching Boston respond after the Boston Marathon attack. Because they taught America a lesson. They grieved. I was there for the memorial. We apprehended those who had carried this out. But a few days later, folks were out shopping. A few days later, people were in that baseball stadium. And you know, singing the national anthem. And Big Papi was saying uh, what he felt about Boston, Boston strong, and how a terrorist attack was not going to change the basic spirit of that city. Well, at that moment, he spoke about what America is. What America is is apparently going to be is how that that is how we are going to defeat these terrorist groups in part because we're going after them and uh, taking strikes against them and arresting them and getting intelligence on them and cooperating with other countries but a lot of it is also going to be to say you do not have power over us okay we can shut him up now we're all done with him so he says so he says this this silliness about 
the, the Boston Red Sox. There's a difference between the president of the United States, it turns out, and the Boston Red Sox. Namely, they play baseball professionally. You're the president of the United States. Them going about their daily business is playing baseball. You going about your daily business is fighting ISIS, not playing baseball, not hanging out with Raul Castro at a baseball game. By the way, worth noting, we didn't defeat the Nazis by continuing to play baseball. Okay, the reason, if you've ever seen a league of their own, the reason there was women's baseball is because the MLB almost shut down, basically, for four years because every member of the MLB who was any good ended up fighting in World War II. Right, DiMaggio was drafted. So was Ted Williams, right? Ted Williams flew missions. And this, this nonsense, uh, I mean, there were, there were Major League Baseball players who were killed in World War II. The idea that you win by just showing them that, and Bush did the same routine, and it's so stupid. You don't beat the terrorists by going to the mall. Okay, you beat the terrorists by having leadership willing to bomb the living crap out of them until they are dead. That's the way that you defeat terrorists. And then they give up when there are enough of them that are dead that they realize that it's a waste of time. But what's amazing is that because they believe, they actually believe this nonsense. Because they believe that you can defeat terror by sending cards that say, you're not strong, you're weak, ha ha. Because they believe that, they throw out all the actual real solutions. So, for example... Ted Cruz was asked about his supposed Islamophobia. He was asked about, you know, you said that you want to profile. Why, is it, why aren't you an Islamophobe? Here's what Ted Cruz had to say about that. This is clip 10, yeah. President Obama goes on TV. He will not say radical Islamic terrorism. Instead, he lectures Americans on Islamophobia. Enough is enough. Islamism is a political and theocratic philosophy that commands its adherents to wage violent jihad to murder infidels, which they define as everybody else. But you're painting one community with one brush. That's no, the no, problem. I'm not. There's a difference between Islam and Islamism. Islamism commands that you either murder the infidels or you forcibly convert them. You wage jihad. And, and here's the consequence of President Obama and Hillary Clinton and, and Bill de Blasio refusing to acknowledge what we're fighting. You end up with policies that don't keep us safe. So, for example, President Obama and Hillary Clinton both still support bringing tens of thousands of Syrian Muslim refugees to America. That is despite the fact that ISIS has said they intend to infiltrate those refugees with jihadists that are here to murder us. And despite the fact that the head of the FBI, James Comey, who was appointed by Barack mm -hmm. Obama, said they cannot vet those refugees to make sure they're not ISIS terrorists. Mm -hmm. The first obligation of the president as commander in chief should be to keep America safe. And I'll tell you this, I will apologize to nobody for how vigorous I will be as president, fighting radical Islamic terrorism, defeating ISIS, and keeping America safe. Okay, so as I mentioned, all of these members of the media go nuts over this. Cruz is saying we should expend more law enforcement resources to go after, to go after the terrorists in Muslim communities. That's crazy. That's, that's shameful. How dare anybody say this? NBC's Chris Jansing says, you know, we, we first have to understand that these jihadists, you know, these, these people blowing themselves up, it has nothing to do with religion. Right? This is Many an actual reporter. Here we go. The people who are involved in these attacks now, uh, it's not a religious calling for them. They essentially are, are gang members. Uh, <laughs> Bakrawi, for example, Ibrahim, who was the older brother, he once took a Kalashnikov rifle and shot at police during the course of a robbery and was sentenced six years ago to nine years in prison. It's not exactly clear how he got out. All of this tied together by Salah Abdesalam. He, of course, was the guy who was on the run for four months after uh, what happened in Paris. Uh, was arrested on Friday. It's funny how it's not. If that's true, why isn't why aren't these these terrorist attacks being carried out by mythical television multi-religious gangs? Right? You know, the, the the whole every time you see a gang on TV, it's always a black guy and seven white guys and a Hispanic guy and like a lesbian chick. It's always it's always like the most diverse gang you've ever seen. Why is it that in real life terrorist attacks aren't carried out by Sabda Abdullah Rahim? And John, John Billy Bob Joe from the South who goes to church six times a week. Why, why is it that it's always just the guy who goes to mosque a lot? I'm not saying that the terrorists aren't criminals. They are criminals, but they are also Islamic criminals. It has something to do with that. But again, the myth is more important than protecting the safety of people. It's true for Obama. It's true for the media. Mika Brzezinski says the same thing over on MSNBC. She, she's embarrassed for the country. And she's talking, of course, to Keith Ellison, the Muslim congressperson from Minnesota. I'm, I've been at a loss this morning, really, you have. at a loss, and um, embarrassed, really, um, for how we must seem, we meaning everyone else, and then Muslim Americans who should be one of us, in light of what Ted Cruz had to say. 
<laughs> I mean, really, it's come on. She's embarrassed. For, I hope her virtue signaling. How many lives in Brussels do you think her virtue signaling saves? Any? How many do you think? How many people can die because of virtue signaling like this? Seriously, the entire West virtue signaling. Oh, we're just so ashamed that we we're talking about taking measures to to put law enforcement resources in areas where there are terrorists. That we're talking about shutting down immigration from countries where terrorists. Come. I'm just, I'm, I couldn't be more ashamed. I couldn't, be, and the reason she's ashamed is because she's talking to Keith Ellison. Keith Ellison, by the way, who has ties to some rather radical groups up in Minnesota. Here's the Muslim congressman from Minnesota himself saying, if we bar Muslims or take any measures against Muslims whatsoever, radical Muslims or Muslims, then we're just like ISIS. Well, you know, what Ted Cruz and Donald Trump and Mark Rubio and all of them have done at one point or another is do the, do the opposite thing that Europeans are trying to figure out how they can do, which is to make sure that everybody can be part of this American fabric. So I think what we really need to do is just, just really understand that we're very fortunate here in the United States to have a First Amendment which says that there's no government religion and everybody is free to practice as they wish. This is the opposite of what ISIS says. ISIS is persecuting Christians and Yazidis and people like that. We cannot be like ISIS and then be better than ISIS. We have got to make a very clear distinction as to who we are. Okay, so you're just, you understand, you're just like ISIS if you use basic risk assessment. If you use basic risk assessment, you're just like ISIS. You know, who takes innocent people out, chops off their head for no reason. By the way, no one's talking about expelling American Muslim citizens who haven't done anything wrong. Nobody's talking about persecuting or throwing in prison innocents who have done nothing wrong. We're talking about taking perfectly legal activity and using it in order to make sure that we have the information that we need in order to stop terrorist attacks. You know, we do this all the time. I'm sorry, this, this is such nonsense. We do it all the time. Okay, they used stop and frisk for 40 years in the city of New York, and they used it to great success. It's what drove down the crime rate in New York. The people who were most benefited by that were the people who were living in minority communities, which were chiefly the victims of the issue. Right? This whole thing is, by the way, Keith Ellison is a guy who took money from the Muslim American Society, which is, which is a Muslim brotherhood offshoot, essentially, uh, to, to go to his, his Hajj to Mecca. So he has some, some rather notorious ties of his own. But Hillary Clinton does the same thing. She, she, she's pushing this narrative, too. Hillary Clinton, she says, you know, when, when, when Trump or Cruz, they talk about Islam, Islamic terror, they're just misfiring. They're just loudmouths. It would also be a serious mistake to begin carpet bombing populated areas right. into oblivion. Proposing that doesn't make you sound tough. It makes you sound like you're in over your head. Slogans aren't a strategy. Loose cannons tend to misfire. Okay. <laughs> okay, first of all, I just want to point out, slogans aren't a strategy. Slogan, loose cannons tend to misfire. So <laughs> slogans are not a strategy. Here's a slogan. Actually, here's two in a row. Slogans are not a strategy, and also loose cannons tend to misfire. Okay, speaking of misfiring on terrorism, we went through Hillary Clinton's record yesterday. Let's talk about what countries actually do to shut down terrorism for a second. Let's get out of this pie-in-the-sky world that Democrats have created, that lefties have created, where everyone is surveilled with the same amount of intensity, where we screen everybody with an unlimited amount of resources, where we have just any amount, an unlimited, in-depth amount of resources. There's no scarcity of law enforcement resources. Let's get out of this magical world she's talking about where everyone is equally likely to commit an act of terror, which is certainly not true. It is certainly not true. Let's talk instead about the fact that Brussels security was crap. And the reason Brussels security was crap is because they didn't do all the things that Ted Cruz and Donald Trump have been suggesting that they do. So the Daily Beast reported this comment two days ago, before Cruz or Trump really said anything. They reported this comment from a frustrated U.S. intelligence official. Quote, even with the EU in general, there's an infiltration of jihadists that's been happening for two decades. And now they're just starting to work on this. When we have to contact these people or send our guys over to talk to them, we're essentially talking with people who are, I'm just going to put it bluntly, children. They're not proactive. They don't know what's going on. They're in such denial. And it's such a frightening thing to admit their country is being taken over. In other words, they know that there's a problem. We know there's a problem. Everybody knows there's a problem. A political correctness dictates that we pretend there's no problem. Israel doesn't have these issues because Israel doesn't have the luxury of these issues. Israel is the number one terror target on the planet. And so in Israel, they don't care. They just go ahead and they use racial and religious and behavioral profiling. They look at risk profiles. They'll drag you out of an airport line. They'll put you behind glass for three hours to question you. They'll, they'll take your phone away from you, and they'll look through all of your pictures to see if there's anything that could possibly be construed as terrorists. They'll look at your Facebook page. They do all of the sort of checks that we should be doing, 
And they do it in targeted fashion because they know that, for example, I am not going to be bombing anything in Israel. Right? As an Orthodox Jew from America, I'm not going to be bombing anything in Israel. The same is not true for a, for a guy who's trying to get into Israel from, for example, Brussels. And he's originally from Syria and he's a Muslim. That guy's going to get additional scrutiny and they make no apologies. By the way, Israel also has an anti-terror fence. Their fence is 96 miles long. It's growing. By the, by the time it's done, it'll probably be about 300 miles long. And it has dramatically reduced the amount of suicide bombing. This is why the terrorists in Israel have been relegated to random stabbing attacks. Right? It used to be they would get on a bus and blow it up. They can't do that anymore. So now they take a knife and smuggle it in and try and stab random Jews. That's bad enough. But they've only been relegated to that because Israel uses all of the things that risk assessment and basic policing would suggest you have to use. This is not difficult in any way, shape, or form. France is doing it now. Eli Lake at Bloomberg reports today, since the attacks in Paris last November, the socialist government of President Francois Hollande has placed his country under a state of emergency. France's National Guard has been deployed to protect sensitive religious sites and other soft targets. The country of Voltaire, Diderot, and Camus is in 2016 the police state that warned that critics warn Cruz or Trump would bring about if given the chance. So France is doing it too. And they have to do it. They don't have a choice. They have no choice but to do it. You know why? So yesterday was was the beginning of the Purim celebrations in Brussels. So Purim is, is sort of the Jewish Halloween in the sense that we wear costumes and, and have festivals and all this. And it's a celebration. Uh, it's, it's the commemoration of the Book of Esther. And for those who don't remember the Book of Esther, the, the only relevant part to this particular story is that there was an edict that went out that all the citizens could kill Jews on a particular date through a series of machinations. Queen Esther got the king to rescind the edict and issue another edict saying Jews could defend themselves, at which point Jews slaughtered all the people who were trying to slaughter them. That's the Book of Esther. Well, in celebration of that, Brussels shut down basically all the synagogues yesterday, fearful that Muslims would attack those synagogues. Okay, so the, so the West has now become King Ahasuerus. It's become Ahasuerus, right? They're telling the Jews, you got to sit tight, and people are going to come after you. You can't defend yourselves. And they're saying that not just to the Jews, but to the West itself. That's what the left says, right? In the, for the purposes of political correctness, we're going to allow you to die. We're going to allow you to die. And we won't, and anybody who stands up against that will call a racist, and we'll call them a xenophobe and an Islamophobe. This is how people get killed. This is how people get killed. Okay, meanwhile, President Obama, uh, he continues his, his, jo his jocular tour of the world in which he apologizes for everything American. And, um, and he, he said a couple of things yesterday that are really kind of incredible. He said, number one, that separation of powers is difficult for the president. So when you combine political correctness with the, the tyrannical thought of, of the president of the United States, here's what you end up with. One of the great advantages of the United States system, even though it's very frustrating sometimes for the president, is that power is distributed across a lot of different institutions. It's, it's what we call separation of powers and decentralization. This makes it hard sometimes for America to change as rapidly as we need to to respond to change circumstances or problems. So he's saying there that he wishes he had more power. It would make things easier. And then he turns around and he rips the Republicans saying, you know, and uh, these crazy Republicans who think that I'm a tyrant, what, what's wrong with these people? Even if we end up with somebody who I might not consider a great president, there is a limit to some of the damage that they can do because, and I'm sure Republicans feel that about me. They're glad that there's distribution of power, you know, because they imagine that I would have turned uh, the United States into Cuba, I suppose. Um, you know, they tend to exaggerate a little bit my... Uh, how I see the world. A little bit. Okay, so that, that's the president of the United States. The reason I bring this up is because the president of the United States is what happens when you combine a tyrannical mindset with political correctness. Right? You end up with this, with this kind of febrile inability to defend yourself against the world's threats led by a guy who is power hungry. That's what you end up with. What happens on the right? So, the response to President Obama and all of his, his weakness and all of his pusillanimity and all of his, all of his nastiness, his, the response to that is Trumpism. The response is, okay, well, you know, he's a dictator who's weak. We need a dictator who's strong. We need a guy who's going to come in and he's going to centralize all power in himself. 
And then he is going to be politically incorrect, say the things that need to be said. He says the right kind of things about Muslims. He says the right kind of things about the border. He says the right kind of things about surveillance. He says all the right kinds of things. There's only one problem with, with, with this philosophy of Donald Trump. Some of what Donald Trump says is politically incorrect. A lot of what he says is just garbage. A lot of what he says is just garbage. And I don't believe that he, uh, first of all, I don't believe that it's principled, his opposition to radical Islam, other than kind of spur of the moment thinking. I mean, this is the same guy we mentioned yesterday who ripped into Pamela Geller after Pamela Geller was targeted for death for drawing Muhammad. But Donald Trump, one of the, one of the dangers I see with Donald Trump is yesterday on Twitter, I said that Donald, Donald Trump is basically the Hannibal Lecter of conservatism. He cannibalizes it, and then he wears its face around. And that's, that's the problem that I have with, with Donald Trump. And what he's doing is he's taking the politically incorrect movement. My response to Obama also is political incorrectness. Political correctness is BS, right? I've been saying that this entire episode and my entire career. Political correctness gets people killed. It gets people killed. People die because of political correctness. Trump has merged political incorrectness, which is a valuable and decent and good movement, with simple vulgarity and stupidity. So yesterday we talked about the fact that Trump was threatening Heidi Cruz, Ted Cruz's wife, because an unaffiliated super PAC, Liz Mayer super PAC, ran an ad of Melania Trump all naked like. And, and today, here's what Donald Trump tweeted in response. And it really is kind of incredible. For people who can't see, it's a picture of Donald Trump's wife next to a picture looking good, looking like a model, next to a picture of Heidi Cruz that is a very bad picture of Heidi Cruz. And it's some meme that somebody made. It says, no need to spill the beans. The images are worth a thousand words. And Trump tweeted, a picture is worth a thousand words. Hashtag lying Ted, hashtag never Cruz, at Melania Trump. And so you put up this picture of Melania next to Heidi Cruz. Because he's a vulgarian, because he's a sad little man, because the, because the fact is that it, it is amazing. Donald Trump complaining, how dare you show my wife naked? That impugns my honor. And his response to that, his response to that is, well, my wife's super hot. She's way hotter than your wife. Really? That's your response, Donald Trump? This is the problem with giving power to anybody, even to respond to the, to the evils and narcissism of President Obama. You see, granted to another bad guy narcissist in Donald Trump, who may do some of the right things, but also does a lot of the wrong things. And, and I think that it's worthwhile to point out, and it's also interesting, just for your own knowledge, where Donald Trump comes from. There's an article in Slate.com by Franklin Ford today. And normally I don't read Slate, but the information here is good. So uh, according to Franklin Ford, quote, his father, himself a successful real estate developer, endlessly expressed a belief in his son's greatness. Quote, you are a king, his father would tell Donald, according to his biographer, Michael D'Antonio. By the way, you want to develop a crap of a child keep telling your, your your kid that he's a king as he grows up that's just that's a way to develop a garbage child his son took that to mean he could set his own rules in elementary school he gave one teacher he didn't like a black eye others were pelted with erasers at birthday parties he would fling cake not even trump's father's wealth nor his father's faith in his son's destiny could save trump from incessant discipline at the age of 13 he was shipped off to new york military academy which employed brutal tactics for the remaking of delinquent character even resorting to violence to assert control over the boys. Trump actually enjoyed participating in this. Apparently, he would tear off the sheets of boys who didn't make their beds properly. But according to Franklin Four, Trump's primary method for asserting dominance was sex. The school's yearbook anointed him the official ladies' man of the class. He began his lifelong practice of, of advertising his bedroom exploits as a means of demonstrating his authority over the rest of the locker room. Decades later, he's still trumpeting his sexual exploits. When, Duck, when Tucker Carlson once mocked him on air, Trump called him and left a voicemail. Quote, it's true you have better hair than I do, but I get more beep than you do. And that's, that's who Donald Trump is. And he, he phoned into the Howard Stern show to talk about cuckolding other men. And, and he would talk about stooping various women. He talk, his wife would talk on, on air. Melania would go on air and talk about him stooping various women. It's, it's, he's, he's pretty gross. He's pretty misogynistic. And again... The problem with Trump is not that he doesn't say some of the right things. He does. The problem is that he says so many of the wrong things and then lumps it in with the right things. So the overall image you get from conservatism, if Trump is the mainstream conservative now, which he isn't, if you allow him to smear conservatism across his face, then what you end up with is a perverse form of conservatism most people are going to discount. So people are going to die because Hillary Clinton and Obama don't care if they die. And people will die because people will look at Donald Trump and what he says about, about radical Islam, and they will discount it because of all the other stupid and terrible things that he says 
about other people. And he does say stupid and terrible things about other people. Okay, time for some stuff I like, and then one thing I hate, and then a little bit of mailbag. And I know everybody's groaning but the, in, in the production team, but tough. Okay, so the thing I like. So everybody at this point has seen Casablanca. If you haven't seen Casablanca, then you absolutely should. But today, th- this week has sort of been a week of talking about how you stand up to tyranny. So here is the best scene from Casablanca, uh, and it is the scene in, in, the, in Rick's Cafe where the Nazis are sitting there, and they start singing Deutschland über Alice, and the, and the, the, the French hero of, of the film stands up, and, uh, and he's an expatriate. He's been released from a concentration. He's escaped from a concentration camp. He's trying to get outside of Casablanca to the west, and, uh, and here he is in his response to the Germans. So one of the cool things about this scene uh, is that there are a bunch of cool things about this scene. First of all, the one thing in this movie, in Casablanca, I never understood is why Ingrid Bergman is even mildly interested in Humphrey Bogart when, when Paul Henry, who plays Victor Laszlo, is such a cooler character. I mean, Paul Henry, first of all, I, I'm not a lady, but I think Paul Henry's a better-looking dude. I feel like Humphrey Bogart's a little over the hill by this point. Originally, Ronald Reagan was, was supposed to actually play the Humphrey Bogart part, uh, which would have been interesting, because at that point, Ronald Reagan was a big star. But... In any case, one of the things that's really interesting about this scene is that all of the people in this scene, who they, the woman they show crying and the bartender, a lot of the people who played in this movie, who played the, the Frenchmen and then the exiles, were actual exiles from Germany. They were people who'd fled Germany, and so they knew what this movie was talking about. This is how you stand up to tyranny. And it's not just the singing, obviously. It's not singing Imagine. But it's the idea that you have to absolutely stamp out the traces of tyranny. They're not sitting there and they're going, oh, you sing your song, we'll sing our song. It's no, we're going to drown you out, right? Your, your voice is not only poor, unimportant, it's evil. Radical Islam is evil. And we are going to do whatever we can to stamp out radical Islam. As a philosophy, it will be stamped out. It must be stamped out. And if we have to kill bad guys to do it, we'll kill bad guys to do it. But there's none of this. We're all going to sit around in the bar together. You sing our song, we'll sing your song, we'll all sing. There's no way that works. It doesn't work. Because the, the response to an attempt to put a boot on your face cannot be, okay, here's the other cheek. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way in foreign policy, and it doesn't work that way in life. Because that's the thing that I like for this week. We'll finish with Casablanca. So, okay, now some stuff that I hate. So a couple of things. First, and I told you so. So for a long time ago, I was on CNN talking about Michael Sam and uh, and the drafting of Michael Sam, the gay football player out of University of Missouri. He was drafted by the St. Louis Rams. And I said, the only reason I thought he was drafted is because he was gay. The NFL wanted him to be drafted. He didn't have the skill set. He was drafted almost last in the draft. He lasted about five seconds in the NFL, and then he didn't even last in, in the CFL, the Canadian Football League. Today, it turns out, according to NFL reporter Howard Balzer, the St. Louis Rams cut a deal with the league to draft Sam late in the seventh round to avoid an appearance on HBO's Hard Knock series. St. Louis was viewed as the ideal landing spot for him because he just finished at University of Missouri. So the Rams cut a deal 
with the NFL. The NFL basically crammed down on the Rams. They, they threatened them. We're going to put cameras in your locker room unless you draft this guy. So just showing you how political correctness impacts everything you watch, including the NFL. And another thing that, that I hate, this is the, I'm, I'm as anti-Trump as anybody in America. This is the only story I've ever read that actually makes me want to vote for Donald Trump. Okay, here is the story. The story is that at Emory University, Somebody at Emory University went around and chalked the name of Trump around the campus. They just chalked Trump 2016 on the sidewalks. That happens all the time. If you've ever been to campus, people do that. The students organized and had a meeting with the president of the university to demand action. They said, why did swastikas on the Jewish fraternity house receive a quick response while these chalkings did not? They, they said, what do we have to do for you to listen to us? One student demanded Emory sent out a university-wide email to decry support for this fascist, racist candidate. And then they said that their feelings were too hurt. They said that people of color are struggling academically because they have to focus on having a safe community, and they felt unsafe because someone was going to vote for Donald Trump. These little pansies, they really, really need to grow a spine. And we need to grow a spine to stand up to them because it's just absurd. It's people like this that make people go, oh, screw you, I'll vote for Trump. Just to, just to screw with your brain, I'll vote for, for Donald Trump. Okay, time for a couple of entries from the mailbag. So as we say here on, on the Ben Shapiro Show, if you want to email us and you're a subscriber, then I'm going to flash a number up on the screen right now, and you are going to get the special privilege. We change the number. We'll change it every week so people don't catch on. It's magical. Um, and I'm going to flash a number up on the screen. If you put it, in the, if you put it in, in the subject line of your email, then we are going to then, – then we will uh, give your email priority in the email bag. So here is so here is the number today. Don't tell anyone. It's a secret. Okay, that's the number. All right. You put that at the top of your email and you will get priority in the email bag. All right. So, as always, we apologize to folks whose emails we couldn't respond to. We get literally a thousand of them a week now. It's insane. I mean, it's over the top. Um, and Lindsay replies to as many of, of them as she can. And let's face it, you'd rather receive a reply from Lindsay than from me anyway. She's better looking. So here is the here here's the mailbag. Okay, Dane asks, I have a two-part question. First, do you ever think that FBI Director James Comey is going to recommend that Hillary be indicted? Second, which one of Andrew Clavin's books would you recommend? Okay, the the, the Comey question is he, he might recommend she'll be indicted, but he'll resign because they're not going to indict her. And people are saying, oh well, if he resigns, that's still a big story. Then they'll just claim that he's a Republican plant, and the only reason he resigned is because he wanted to get Hillary, and the great and good Obama administration stopped him from acting out his vendetta. As far as Clavin's books, uh, there's which book did I read of Clavin's that I really liked? I do like Were Werewolf Cop, uh, Cop is a good book. I'll so I'm gonna so I'll spill the beans about about Drew's books. I I think Drew is a terrific writer. I think he's a terrific writer. If you like pulpy plot and you like good writing, then Drew's your guy. If his his but his best thing, the thing he's best at is he really, really penetrates into characters' minds in a unique way that's really great. There's always one section of his book, and I say, I wish that this were the entire book because it's so good. There's always one section of Clavin's books that are just so good. But they're, they're, all, they're all a lot of fun. So Werewolf Cop, which was one of his latest ones, was good. Um, I'm trying to remember what, what – there's another one that I read recently that I really liked. Um, which one was it? He – it was – let's see. Now I'm looking up all of Drew's titles. Um, I've heard Empire of Lies, by the way, is very good. True Crime is a very good novel. Uh, True Crime is, is one of his earlier novels. It's the one that was made into a movie with Clint Eastwood, uh, and it is, it's, it's a very good book. There's one, again, there's one particular section of the book that's just phenomenal. It's when there, there's a father writing a letter to his kid, and it's just great. It's, it's, it's terrific. Drew, Drew's a very, very good writer. Okay, Alex writes, As a young conservative living in Cleveland, how should I prepare myself for the crap storm that will be the Republican convention? Well, I mean, first of all, you live in Cleveland, so... I mean, uh, <laughs> we'll start with that. I'm I'm sorry about that. I've heard there are nice parts of Cleveland. I don't mean to rip all of Cleveland, just most Cleveland. But in any case, you know, the, how will you prepare yourself for for the for the crap storm? The way to prepare yourself for the crap storm is to know that there probably will be one and just stay indoors. Tim writes, my question is, do you think there's any viability in Ted Cruz running as a third party or independent candidate if he doesn't get the Republican nomination? Is there any way we can talk to both Cruz and Bernie to jump in as independent candidates? Sanders won't do it. Cruz isn't going to do it either. Cruz thinks that if he doesn't win the nomination this time, then he'll get a revenge nomination in four years, so he's not running as a third-party candidate. Justin writes, would you under any circumstances make a run for the White House? 
yeah, why the hell not? I mean, if Ben Carson can do it, sure, anybody can. So I'm <laughs> between Donald Trump and Ben Carson, our standards have dropped dramatically. So uh, I wouldn't be nearly as bad as, as, as Trump will be or any of the Democrats. Okay, Celeste says, do you recommend any news outlet? Yes, Daily Wire. And finally, Ben writes, in the past, you've demonstrated how well-versed you are in classical music. I'm curious to know what your three favorite symphonies are. Mine are Sibelius number two, Mahler number three, Tchaikovsky number six. So you have a flair for the theatrical. Okay. I know it's not exactly a political question, but you've mentioned in the past that at times you enjoy diversions from politics. Thanks for your time. Okay. So three favorite symphonies off the top of my I love Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony, which is just wonderful and joyous and, and lovely. Uh, it's, it's cliche to say Beethoven's Ninth, but Beethoven's Ninth is a masterpiece. Particularly, by the way, particularly... The, the, the first movement, the last movement is, is obviously brilliant, but the first movement is, the opening of the first movement is fantastic, particularly if you're a string player, because it's so brilliant. He opens with the violin's tuning, right? I mean, they're actually tuning. The way you tune a violin, you play the string and you try to, you try to match it to true A, right? So what, what he does is he opens with the entire orchestra tuning, and then he comes together and boom, it's the symphony. It's really, really cool. So, that's, so Beethoven's Ninth uh, is, is an obvious pick. And then th there are really so many. I mean... Brahms's Brahms's fourth is phenomenal. Uh, the uh, I, I'm not a fan of of some of the later symphonies, some of the the kind of later period symphonies. Mozart's Jupiter Symphony is tremendous. Um, th there there's so many, but I'll I'll have to put together a complete list off the top of my head. Those are your easy picks. Those also happen to be picks that are are very user friendly. So so if you're just beginning in classical music, this is a very good way to get into classical music. It would be with Beethoven's Ninth and with Brahms's Fourth and with the the Italian Symphony is the the most accessible, user-easy symphony probably ever written. It's really great. And by the way, if you want to watch a movie featuring that music, Breaking Away, which is another movie that I love, love, love. Great movie. We'll have to do that next week as a thing I like and play a scene from it because it's great. Have a wonderful weekend. Try to stay out of trouble. President Obama will try to destroy the country. Don't let him do it. If you have to throw yourself at him just to get him to tango to avoid destroying the country, do it. Because I promise you that whatever tango he dances with you, at least he's not tangoing with some horrible dictator who's going to kill people. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. PureTalk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So... I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 